As you're taking your seat, let me uh, reintroduce myself. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, you wouldn't know that because I'm rarely in here. Unless you're part of the uh, adult Bible class that meets in the chapel, a, a hallway over, you wouldn't know me from anybody, right? But I'm happy to be back here. It's been cr- since Christmas that I was op- had the opportunity to uh, share God's Word here from this pulpit, so i um, glad to be back. I'm also really grateful for the prayers of many of you in this room that I'm actually standing here. Not sitting on a, on a stool, not leaning on a crutch, but, but standing here in your presence. And I'm grateful for your prayers for that. Have you ever uh, launched a new business? We had someone in the last hour who is, is in the middle of that right now. How about uh, teachers? How about students? How about starting that new semester, starting off that new year? Or what about husbands and wives? Do you remember when you first fell in love with each other? The common denominator in those three groups of people is that we're, uh, we're focused on something. Uh, you could say, in a sense, we're on mission. We're on mission to launch a new business. We're on uh, mission to start out a new semester on the positive end of things. We're on mission to uh, fall in love or have the other person fall in love with us. I know of a young couple who many, many years ago back in the early 70s, actually the spring of 1971 to be exact, um, who began to date, began to fall in love. He was a freshman in college. She was a senior in high school, and they had dated for a couple of weeks. And then he took off. He went back to the uh, East Coast for a summer job, and and then she, after graduating from high school, she she left shortly after that and, and came up here, actually. came up to the Pacific Northwest Before they departed, he said something really, really lame to her. He said, I love you. And she looked at him and said, well, that's nice. I can't tell you that. Okay, I can't reciprocate with that. And and, and this young gentleman said, well, okay, then let it be known that when you do eventually fall in love, know that I'll be standing here ready to catch you. I use the personal pronoun there because that young couple, obviously, was me and my bride, Debbie, okay, back in the spring of 1971. You know what was interesting? That summer, as a result of of, of that commitment that I'd made, I was a man on mission, right? I was selling books door-to-door throughout the suburbs of Boston, but at the same time, we were writing packets of letters back and forth to each other. I think we made a total of... Three telephone calls, all from a landline. This is, this is pre-email, pre-texting, pre-cell phones, right? My point is, though, is that it, it changed the focus of our summer. It changed the trajectory, actually, of, of what we did at the end of that summer. Just as if you launch a business or if you start a new class or um, when you're on mission, it changes everything about life. Well, this morning... We're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 15. It's on the talk sheet. In fact, it's already been pointed out to me uh, this morning that if you look at that talk sheet, there are 20 verses there. Uh, An extra small font had to be found in order to fit all of those verses on there uh, for us today. But in those 20 verses, we're going to discover some very interesting things this morning. But before we get to verse 14, I want to take a 
one verse step backwards to verse 13. Verse 13 reads, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Sounds like a benediction. I think it was used as a benediction last week at the end of Eric's sermon. It's going to be used again today as a benediction. It it appears that Paul is at the end of his letter here in verse 13. But no, he has more. And he, in verse 14, he begins um, what we call an epilogue, a conclusion to this letter, which we'll be looking at today. It's interesting, though, for... Fifteen chapters or more, Paul has sustained an argument about the gospel, what the nature of the gospel is, and also some of the practical implications. You'll remember if you've been here at New Life uh, from chapter 1, verse 16, all the way through the end of chapter 11. It's all about the nature of the gospel. It's all about what is faith in Jesus. It's all about what is God's grace. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul makes that shift from an understanding of the nature of the gospel to, okay, let's flesh it out. Let's, let's deal with some practical implications here in chapter 12, verse 1. And he does that all the way through 15 and verse 13, the verse that I just read. But now in verse 14, he shifts gears again. He's coming to the close of a letter. This, this, uh, this letter is something that is dear to his heart, and so he's writing in a very personal style. Now let's remember, this is a letter. This is not a textbook on doctrine. Now we, we treat Romans that way as if it were a textbook on doctrine. It's the closest thing to that, but in reality, it's really a letter. And in fact, this section today, verses uh, 14 through the end of this chapter, this is the most letterly part of the letter. Paul writes with candor. Paul writes with great affection. Paul writes using the first-person pronoun and the second-person pronoun. He uses I and you repeatedly. He's very direct in his communication. And what he starts out to do here is he, he is encouraging these Roman Christians with some very affirming words. And then he opens his heart and he opens his life to this audience, these believers in Rome, and he reveals the past, the present, and even the future of his ministry. You could say he focuses on his mission. And then he urges them to join him on mission with him in ways that we'll get to in just a little bit. The uh, Apostle Paul, uh, the term apostle literally means sent one, the, the sent one who is Paul. He is a man on mission. In fact, in more than Paul's, in, in more than half of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament, he writes details about his ministry as an apostle, as a sent one. He is, in fact, a man on mission. Let me just call to your attention three verses. You can take a note of this. You can look them up later. I'm going to read them to you now. You can pull out your smartphone, take a snapshot of the, of the screen behind me if you want. But in Romans chapter 1, the very first verse, Paul begins this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart, he says, set apart or sanctified for the gospel of God. In Acts chapter 9, that's the story of when Saul of Tarsus became Paul when he had this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And in the city of Damascus, three days later, God speaks to a man by the name of Ananias. And this is what he says in in Acts 9, verse 15. Go, 
For he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul is a man on mission. And then in Galatians 1, that that great autobiographical section there in his letter to the Galatians, here's what Paul writes himself. But when he, God, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, when he was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul is a man on mission. And he knows that this mission, this calling, has has come into his life even before he was born. Now, it's important to share just a quick uh, note of clarification here. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. We're not. Okay, I'm not. Pastor Scott's not. We're not that. That's Paul. However, having said that, there are still things that we can uh, learn from observing Paul. There are things that we can actually apply for how we approach God's mission or ministry that's on our lives. And each of us has one. We know that for a fact. In fact, we, we are his workmanship, Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. Right? So we are all on mission. And in fact, we've been commissioned. Matthew chapter 28, we've received this great commission to go and do what? Make disciples of all the nations. And so, as we look at this section, Paul is not just talking about his mission, but also there's some things that we can learn from that and apply to our lives as well, very practically. So let's, let's do a little bit deeper, uh, deeper dive in, into this as we, as we approach this section. There are There are five characteristics of uh, Paul's mission that I believe uh, emerge out of this text. Uh, He speaks of his goal on mission. He speaks of his focus as he's on mission. The scope and strategy of his mission. The priorities of his mission. And then at the very end, uh, he appeals to the Roman Christians to engage with him on mission. Let's look first of all at verse 14. 14, 15, and 16, those three verses describe the goal of Paul's mission. Let me read this for you. You can follow along in your Bibles or you can look at it up on the screen. Verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Verse 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Before we look at some of the details of these verses, I want to just take a, a several chapter step backwards and show you there's an interesting comparison here be how, be, be, how Paul is, uh, is giving us the end of his letter and how he's comparing it to the start of his letter. Now, there are multiple examples of this in chapter 1. Let me just call to your attention four of them. In verse 15 of our chapter this morning, Paul is commending the Romans. He's commending their character. Well, he's already done that. 
He's already done that in the very first chapter in verse 8. He, he commends them for their worldwide witness. In verse 19, Paul says that his mission is to bring Gentiles to obedience. And he's already stated that in verse 5 of chapter 1, where he speaks of the obedience of faith among all the nations. In verse 22, Paul mentions that he has been hindered, or stronger word, prevented. He's been prevented from visiting Rome. And he references that in the very first chapter as well. And then finally, there's also a connection between these two chapters in that he references a desire to be mutually blessed. He wants to be blessed by their lives, and he wants to be a blessing to them. Again, why am I making this point? Because I want to underscore that this is a letter. It's like you write a letter to someone you love. You're going to open with some thoughts about that person, how much you love them, and you're going to close with that as well, and you're going to tie that whole thing together. Paul just happens to do that at the at the bookend, so to speak, of uh, chapter 1 and, and chapter 15 of this book of Romans. In verse 14, Paul commends them for their character. He says, look, I've been teaching you about God's grace, about faith in God's grace, about the nature of the gospel. And I've been strongly encouraging you to conduct your lives in a manner that's consistent with the gospel, with that good news. But now I want to commend you. I want to commend you for three things. He commends them for goodness, knowledge, and the ability to instruct or the ability to admonish. Let's unpack that just a little bit. That term for goodness is literally the same word that's used in Galatians. When he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, um, that, that's, it's a term that would speak not only about a person who has, is upright in character, but also a person who's kind, and even a person who is generous in their kindness. They're full of that. They're full of goodness. He also says, you're full of knowledge. He says, you've been filled with that. You have a plentiful supply of this knowledge or this comprehensive insight into God's saving purposes. What I've been teaching you about, sharing with you for for multiple chapters, Paul is saying. And then finally, he says, as a result of this goodness and as a result of this knowledge that you have, you're able to instruct. Now, that's unfortunately not as strong a term as it should be. You're able to actually admonish, even a stronger word, warn. He's using very strong terminology here. And he says we're to do that with one another. The term itself means to give counsel to someone in order for them to avoid or to stop an improper course of conduct. Parents, we do that, right? We admonish our children, either in advance of something we see coming or once they've already stepped in it and we want them to to, to get out of it and move on. We we admonish our children. Well, Paul is saying, I'm going to commend you because you've been able to do that. You've been able to admonish one another. That that term, one another, is actually one word in the Paul's original writing language. And, and he's, he's saying there that this is something that is mutual. Something is that is reciprocal. It's used a hundred times in the New Testament. It's a very, uh, a very important word as a result of that. Paul uses it, uses it 60 of those times. I think one of the best ways that he uses it is in Colossians 3. You've probably memorized this verse, some of you. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. Yeah, 
one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving uh, thankfulness in your hearts to God. These three things, goodness, knowledge, admonition, are indicative of a person who is obedient to the life of faith, which is, again, what Paul is on mission to do, to bring people to obedience of faith. That is his goal in mission. Look at verse 16 with me. He says, I'm a minister. I'm engaged in priestly service. Um, I'm bringing an offering. And I want that offering to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's fascinating. Paul, former rabbi, is presenting his goal of mission, obedience of faith in the gospel. He's presenting his goal in priestly worship language. That first term, in fact, minister, is the same root from which we get our current word liturgy. That's what we do in church. We have a liturgy of, of how we worship. Paul says, I'm bringing the Gentiles as a sacrifice presented, as an offering, and I want that sacrifice to be made holy to be set apart or consecrated. You can't help but notice here too, right? The Trinity is involved. Christ Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, all three persons of the Trinity are engaged in the goal of mission. Well, what's the takeaway? What what difference does that make? It's like, so what, Tim? Now what? Right? And we're going to stop at the end of each of these five and just ask that question. What's a takeaway for us today? What can we learn from Paul that would make uh, an impact on our lives as well? We could say several things, but I'll say just one. The goal of making disciples what we've been called on mission to do, the goal of that is to not just merely tell people about Jesus so that they have more information about Jesus. Not even to, to illustrate by dem- demonstrating by activity uh, who Jesus is. Although those, that's ve- those two are very important. We must tell people about Jesus and we must demonstrate the love of Jesus. But it's not just about that. What Jesus wants, what God wants for us is obedience. He wants life change. That's why I prayed for that this morning. I don't, I don't want us just to sit here and collect a bunch of new biblical data as good as it is. We want to be changed by that as a result of that. While I was preparing this message this week, I was reminded of, a, of an occurrence more than a decade ago. I was leading a, a men's Bible study on Monday nights, <clears throat> about 20 guys, all hard-charging Southern California, uh, Orange County business types. And we were meeting, at the time I was, te- I was teaching and working at Biola, and we were meeting at one of Biola's extension centers. Uh, we had a beautiful conference room, and, and that's where we held this Bible study on Monday nights. I forget what book we were going through. It, it might have been Romans, actually. And one evening, for whatever reason, uh, a gentleman in that group, who remained nameless, but he started to share how he'd been having some difficulties in his marriage, and his eyes had wandered, and he, had, he was getting to know a, a, a young lady that he was working with uh, in his office. And uh, I mean, I'm sitting there listening to this in the middle of a Bible study. Again, I think it was on Romans, no less. And he's, he's sharing this. He's just being, he's bearing his soul. And I'm going, all right, Lord, help me through this because I'm not sure how to respond to this. Well, I didn't have to do a thing except pray because immediately several guys in that study took this guy straight to the Word of God and began admonishing him, began instructing him based on the knowledge of God's Word. 
And it was, it was so amazing. It was almost like they were pulling the blinders off this guy's eyes. And he, he began to admit, he, he, he said, oh my gosh, I, don't, I can't believe I'm saying what I'm saying. I can't believe I've been doing what I've been doing. He was on the cusp of, uh, of, of an illicit relationship with this lady. It would have destroyed his marriage, would have messed up his family. But these guys took him to God's Word and applied the truth of God's Word to him. And it changed his life. I'm, I'm happy to say I'm still in contact with this guy and his wife, and they're, they're doing great. They're, doing, they're growing strong, and they, and they still both love the Lord. I'm not sure that would, that would have happened if it weren't for uh, men in a Bible study who took seriously that the, the, the goal of mission here is obedience. The goal of mission is life change. And they weren't about to let this guy uh, slide off in, into a, a life of, of that would have been a, an absolute mess. Let's look at the next three verses, uh, 17, 18, and 19. And I think in these verses we see a, a focus of Paul's mission. Now, we've talked about the goal of his mission. Here we see the focus. Let me read these three verses to you. In verse 17, In Christ Jesus then... I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Let me stop right there. We'll pick up the rest of verse 19 in a minute. Paul is saying in verse 17 that he is he's proud. He has a reason to be proud of my work for God. That word uh, proud, some versions say boasting. I'm, I'm, I can boast about this. It's better translated as rejoicing or exulting or glorifying. We use a term here at New Life a lot called delight. We want our people to delight in a relationship with our Creator through Jesus Christ. And so, in a sense, what, what really what Paul is saying here is he has... He has a reason for rejoicing. He has a reason for exulting. The term itself is used multiple times in Paul's writings. In Romans chapter 5, he says, Through him also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we, what? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Same word. We, we can boast about uh, the, the hope of the glory of God that we have. Maybe a, a, a clearer way to look at this verse would be at the bottom of the screen. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for rejoicing, reason for exulting, reason for delighting in things pertaining to God. Verse 18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Notice, notice the focus. The focus is on not what Paul has done, and if anybody could have focused on uh, his achievements, it could have been Paul, right? But no, his focus is on whom? His focus is on Christ. What Christ has accomplished in what? In bringing these Gentiles, this what I've been called to, in bringing them to a life of obedience. And then in the first part of 19, he says, and this is all done by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. The term there, signs and wonders, is it's standard biblical terminology for miracles. The first word, signs, uh, speaks of the purpose of miracles. We know that Jesus performed miracles uh, for, the, for the purpose of showing 
who he was. And then the wonders reference kind of the unusual, miraculous character of those miracles. But notice, that's not Paul's focus. He's not, he's not focused on the shock and awe, the signs and wonders that will accompany uh, life change. He's focused, rather, on the power of the Spirit of God. Again, back to a blank screen, hmm. intentionally, because I want us to focus on, so what? what? What's the difference? What difference can that make for me? What's the takeaway? What can we learn from Paul that makes sense to our lives today? Well, I believe, first and foremost, we have got to focus on the work of the Trinity what God is already doing. God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, all three working together to bring about uh, what God wants done in this world. It's, it's not about us. The story's not about us. It's not about our training. It's not about our experience. It, it's not about our ideas for doing things for God. No, it's all about the triune God. And frankly, getting on board with His agenda getting on board with what he's already doing in the world. That's why I appreciate what um, Eric prayed this morning as we think about church planting. We're, we're looking to get on board with what God is already doing in communities. And that's why we need prayer for wisdom to discern, especially Taylor, to discern where is that place that God would, where we could make the most impact, where God is already at work. In verses 19, 20, and 21, we see what I would call a the scope of Paul's mission, and even a little bit of the strategy behind that mission. Verse 19, the second part. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and it's great, because here's Paul, this, this former rabbi, trained in the Old Testament, could probably quote it forwards and backwards. He's quoting now from Isaiah 52, verse 15. As it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Let's go back to verse 19. Uh, he mentions Jerusalem, he mentions Illyricum, and he uses a phrase there in the middle that connects the two that says all the way around. It's, it's just one word, but the word literally means circle or think of a, a, a circuitous path. He's, he's uh, indicating that he's been on a circuit. He's, Paul was like a circuit riding preacher on his missionary journeys. It's helpful to get a, a visual of this. So Illyricum is, uh, in present day terms, as far north as Slovenia, we have a member of our body in Slovenia, down through Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, and even the northern part of Albania. This whole region was called Illyricum. Now, I want you to notice he's not that far from Rome, but he's never been there. That's across the Adriatic Sea. He's been over here. We don't know how far he went in Illyricum or if he just went up to the border. But the point that he's making here is that I, I have been on mission. Part of the scope of my mission has taken me from uh, Jerusalem as far east as you can go in terms of the beginning of his ministry all the way to the western, northwesternmost part of where he could go. It's only about 14,000 miles if you follow 
his footsteps on his three journeys. And as um, I was reminded at the first service, uh, they didn't have air travel. They didn't have jets. Okay, This was all by, by foot. Uh, wow. It, it's just amazing to me that this, this shows the, the scope of this mission that God had sent uh, Paul on. And you know what? He's doing the same thing in our lives as well. Maybe the scope of that mission is just simply walking across the street or walking next door to a neighbor who's in need. Or it could be that God would call us to such faraway places like, like Slovenia. It's, it's strictly up to him. It's his scope and his strategy that he gives us here. It's interesting to me, too, that Paul says in verse 20 that he doesn't want to go where the, the gospel's already been proclaimed. He wants to go to pioneer um, places where the gospel has not been proclaimed yet. And again, that's part of his strategy that God has entrusted to him. And then, like a good rabbi, he quotes out of the Old Testament to support his decision for doing that very thing and not building on someone else's foundation. What's the takeaway? What can I glean from that? What can I learn from Paul? What can I apply to myself? Simply, God directs the scope. God directs the strategy. He directs the scope and strategy of what he calls us to do, where he calls us to do it. Thankfully, right? Because if he didn't, then I can, I can confess Tim here would want to run ahead of him. I have that tendency. I want to run ahead of what God is, what God is already doing. Some of you would rather kind of lag behind. What Paul is showing us here is that he's just, he's just in stride. He's in stride with Jesus. He's following the footsteps of Jesus, and he's doing exactly what God is, is directing him to do. That's the takeaway in terms of our scope, our strategy, on mission for the sake of the gospel. Let's look at the, the next section, which is the longest section within this uh, 20, verse, 20 verses we're look at, looking at today. Let me, uh, let me just read these for you in kind of a block, beginning with verse uh, 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered, or better word, prevented, from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to where? Spain. Really? That's awesome. We'll come back to that. And to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Hmm. In, in ten of Paul's other letters, he, he seeks to make his personal, physical presence 
felt among their midst. And here, he's, he's, getting, uh, he's very personal about this, of, of what, what he desires. He, he desires to actually be physically present with them. He's never been to Rome. He's, he's heard about what God's grace has done amongst Gentile and Jewish believers in Jesus now. So he has a strong desire to visit Rome. And in fact, we, we notice here in verse 24 that he even says, and, and hey, I'm coming because I want to be helped along on my journey. The term that Paul is using there is actually, could be translated, better translated as to be fitted with the requisite supplies for my journey. In other words, it's a technical term for missionary support. What Paul is saying is, hey, I'm coming. I want to be with you. I want to see you. I want to have fellowship with you. But get ready, because you need to support me, right, as I go on to the next stop of ministry. So be prepared for that. So although he desires to visit Rome, he, he plans to visit Spain as well. He's not coming to Rome and saying, this is going to be, be the end of my ministry. He's saying, no, I want to go on to Spain. Now, we don't know if Paul ever made it there. Scripture does not indicate if he did or not. Some historians would say, yes, he not only went to Spain, but he even went to Great Britain, what is now Great Britain. Um, others would say, absolutely not. We, we don't know, and, and so there's really no need to go there, except we can observe that Paul had this strong desire and was making plans already to take the gospel to what to him was the furthest reaches of the earth, right? Before the, the kind of the, the flat earth approach, you know, somewhere beyond Spain, the edge of the earth dropped off, right? Um, and so Paul has this desire. He wants to take the gospel to the farthest reaches uh, because of, of, of the sake of God's grace in his life. But notice in verse 25, he says, But at present, however, I'm going to go to Jerusalem because I've made a commitment to bring some aid, some physical aid. He's collected a contribution. Uh, the book of Second Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapters 8 and 9, he goes into great detail on this, on how he encouraged the believers in Macedonia and Achaia in places like um, uh, Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth to, to take a collection in order to meet the physical needs of the struggling Jewish believers in Jerusalem. They'd experienced famine. They'd experienced an immense amount of persecution. And so Paul is saying, look, I want to come and see you. Uh, and I'm planning to go and see them over here in Spain. But I've got some priorities here. And I've got to take this, this offering here. And I got to go be of, of, of witness and a help and encouragement to our brothers back in Jerusalem. Well, what's a takeaway for that? What's the potential for that? What can we learn from Paul in this regard? Simply, what God has called us to, our mission, our ministry, whatever that is, and everybody in here is called to something. Okay? Everybody in here who professes. Faith in Jesus Christ is called to ministry, called on mission. God calls us, but He will also determine, and He will also direct our priorities. So again, like the other parts of, of this mission, the goal, the focus, the scope, now the priorities, it's all directed by God. And we, we see as Paul is wrapping up this, this doctrinal treatise letter, slash letter, He's doing it in such a way to challenge 
these people. And he's going he's gonna to now conclude this section by appealing strongly. The, the terminology used here is very strong. He's urging them. He is, uh, we don't use this word often, but he's entreating them. He's beseeching them. He's exhorting them to engage in mission with him. Let me read these three verses for us, beginning in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. His appeal, his urging, his entreating, his exhortation. Notice, notice where it's rooted. It's rooted in the Trinity again. <laughs> you know, a, a term that's not found in Scripture, Trinity, yet a concept that's laced throughout Scripture and very strongly in this section we're looking at here this morning. By our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, and in your prayers to God. And then he invites them to strive together, to literally to wrestle together. It was a, that was a word that was used of those who would wrestle in the Corinthian and the Olympic Games. In Colossians chapter 4, at the end of that letter, Paul mentions of a friend of his, one of his uh, colleagues, Epaphras, and he says to the Colossian believers, Epaphras, who's one of you and a servant of Christ, he, he sends you greetings as well. And then he says this, Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Oh, I love that. I love that. Because Paul is appealing to these Roman believers to in, engage with me. This isn't just my mission as apostle to the Gentiles. Engage with me, struggle with me, wrestle with me in prayer. Specifically, verse 31, that I would be delivered and that the gift would be accepted. That that there would be a willingness on the part of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to receive it. We know from the book of Acts in chapter 21 that when Paul gets to Jerusalem... um, the Roman government has to, the Roman soldiers have to take him into custody to spare his life because the Jews are about to kill him. They're, they're, they're outraged at this former rabbi who's turned to Jesus and is leading others to follow Jesus as well. And so Paul is asking them to pray in advance. It's almost like he, he had an intuitive sense that he, he's entering a danger zone here. So please pray that I'll be delivered from danger, but also that the Jewish believers will willingly accept that gift. In the last uh, couple of verses here, it's fascinating to me that uh, Paul gives us what I think are results, results that emerge from engaging in mission. Notice what they are. He says, I want to come to you with joy, and I want to be mutually refreshed in your company as we hang out together so that the God of peace may be with you all. That's a fitting uh, kind of stamp of approval at the very end of what Paul is doing here as, he, uh, as he's sharing with these Roman Christians about his mission to reach the unreached and appealing to them to engage with him in that mission. The same thing holds true for us. 
that we would experience the joy that we have because of our relationship with God, that we would delight in His presence. And that as a result of being together, we would be mutually encouraged and refreshed in each other's company so that peace would, raise, would reign in our lives. Those are the takeaways. That's, that's what happens when people uh, focus on mission, when people have a goal for serving God, are focused on that goal, allowing God to develop the strategy and the scope of the extent of that, of that mission. That's what happens, is God changes us from the inside out and does the same for all of those around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great, very simple, very clear challenge from Your Word this morning. To, in a sense, learn from Paul. Be like Paul. Not that we're called as apostles to Gentiles, but to learn from from how he went about his calling. Lord, may we do the same. May we be encouraged by the truth of your word this morning. And Father, my prayer is that, again, this truth of your word would would go far beyond just uh, our ears and our minds, but Lord, that it would literally would penetrate our hearts so that it would make a difference in our lives, so that your word would take root in our hearts, would bear fruit for your glory. That's our desire, Lord. As we walk out of this place this morning, we pray that we might walk out as men and women, young people, boys and girls, on mission to serve you in the capacities you've created us to serve you. May you be glorified through us, we pray. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.